Take our Bibles tonight and turn over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we're going to begin in verse 12. We're going to read through verse 19. At least that's the plan at this point. Chapter 12, or chapter 21, verse 12. We'll read through verse 19. Seen a couple of these young guys running around here. Uh, Brother Bill's been throwing out these ties. They're all wearing these, what do you call those? Bow ties. Yeah, bow ties, yeah. Man, it's a new trend. 
Started that a long time ago. Yeah. Now they've got a whole new wardrobe of them, and I guess it'll be back in vogue again. It's awesome. All right, John chapter 21. Let's begin in verse 12. Jesus saith unto them, Come and die. None of his disciples just asked him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them a fish likewise, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus shewed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Father, we come to you tonight, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would work in our lives tonight through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God. Lord, we just ask that you take this Word and truly drive it home in our hearts and lives, and may we, Father, apply it as necessary and needful. We're grateful, Father, for just the Word of God you permit us to glean and Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to grow. We ask, Lord, that you would just now be preeminent in this service. May you move and work in our lives unabated. May we not stand in your way in the least. Lord, may we open ourselves up to your leadership and your love. Now, Father, again, fill me with your spirit, and Lord, be with every listening ear, and may those ears be anointed as well. Lord, we need you tonight. We love you. We can do nothing without thee. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In this particular passage, especially those last few verses, we see here Jesus summarizing the life of Peter long before he ever arrives at the outcome or the end. He appears to touch on his youth. He appears to look at his life, and he even seems to address his future. In all of this, I kind of see a picture of the Christian life and the very stages of Christian maturity. And I want to take just a few minutes and consider this thought, Christian life stages. And I want you to think along the way, where do I fit? Where do I stand in all of this? We're going to note three areas or three stages. And I want you to just ask yourself, where am I at in my Christian development in life today? First of all, we see the development of the Christian life. That's the first thing. Look at verse 18a, right at the beginning. He says there, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. We're going to note that the Christian life begins as babes. The child of God is very immature to begin with. The Bible says in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, turn there, would you? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it addresses this idea of immaturity. Listen, there is nothing wrong with being immature if you indeed are a babe in Christ. That's normal. We don't expect little babies to be mature either, do we? We expect them to be immature. That's, what, uh, that's how it works. That's just the way it is. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Notice what the Bible says here. It says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And I believe that every born-again believer has tasted that the Lord is gracious. 
The question is now, have you allowed the Lord to help you to grow? Have you desired the sincere milk of the Word? Were you hungry early on in your, your, your development? And again, for every believer, God has a desire for them to develop. And again, one of the, the, the characteristics of a new believer is immaturity. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 says, Whom we speak, whom we preach, excuse me, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, again, is speaking now and he's saying, listen, our goal, our desire is to see every person develop and to grow into maturity, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We want to present everyone perfect in Christ Jesus. Well, listen, that doesn't happen overnight. That's a process. And the fact is, is that as believers in Christ, when we come to the Lord, we're going to see that the, one of those Christian life stages is the development of the Christian life early on. We're babes in Christ. We're immature. Not only that, but we find ourselves often early on being independent. Independent. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Well, let me tell you, trusting the Lord early on in our Christian life sometimes is a challenge. We were so used to doing things on our own. We're so used to taking the bull by the horns, taking the steering wheel in our hand. And as a result of that, sometimes if we're not careful, we're very independent instead of dependent upon the Lord. Newborn babies in Christ struggle to yield themselves to the Lord as they ought to at times. They're immature in their approach. They don't see things from the biblical perspective. They still operate often in the emotion, and they find themselves, if not careful, being very independent instead of dependent upon God. Also, we see here early on in a Christian's life, a babe in Christ, some indiscretion. Yeah, immaturity independence, but also indiscretion. They exercise bad judgment sometimes. You ever notice that about new babies in Christ? The new convert? They just don't exercise good judgment sometimes. They, they, they make bad decisions. They find themselves in situations or circumstances that they didn't even maybe mean to get into. They just end up there. For instance, with a child, you think about children and you say, wow, is that really true? Yes, it is. Think about it. Children will touch a hot burner and they get burned. You think, that was dumb. Why'd they touch that hot burner? They don't know any better. And they don't use the proper discretion. They haven't been taught enough. They haven't been trained enough. They still are trying to figure it all out. And they reach up and they touch that hot burner. Maybe they eat all the jelly beans in the entire bag. And they get sick. Where'd all those jelly beans go? I don't know. I got a tummy ache, mommy. Right? Indiscretion. Why? As a result of their immaturity. Then also, you think about a little child. Isn't it funny? You know, you take the couriers out. One of the things you have to be careful with, with the new kids, not so much the older ones, not so much the ones that have been out for six months or a year, but those brand new ones that just come up from the kindergarten to the first grade. You got to watch them because they'll walk right up to dogs, any dog, and try to pet it. Oh, you got to be careful. That's, that's not showing much discretion. That's indiscretion, right? But that's kids, and that's all right. We expect that, so we have to be careful with them at that point. We got to warn them and say, now listen, we don't. That's one of the rules, actually, in the Courage is you don't pet dogs. You, you don't just pet dogs. Don't pet doggies. I know they're wonderful, and they're very nice, and they're lovely, but pet yours, not theirs. You know, when you get home and, or you get back to the church and there's a stray dog running through the streets, grab it all you want with your parents there, but not while I'm in charge, right? Grabbing dogs. They, that's indiscretion, but we expect that from kids, right? They're immature. We know that. They're babies, yet they're very young and inexperienced, and we get it. They're even somewhat independent at times, even more than we would think. You'd think they'd be scared of things. Sometimes they're not scared at all. They're very independent. Hey, babies in Christ are very similar. They're immature. They're independent often. They're indiscreet in that sense. They, they don't even mean to get in a mess, but they end up in them sometimes. That's one of the stages uh, that we see. 
the developmental stage of the Christian life. Early on, they're developing. They're, developing. They're, they're, they're They haven't reached or obtained to that goal, and that's where they're at. And that's okay. It's all right. It's sad when Christians, you know, that have been around a long time can't understand that babies are going to do dumb things. And I say dumb things. I don't mean that derogatorily. I just mean that they're going to do things that don't make a lot of sense. Why did you go there? Why did you hang out with them? Why did you get in the car with that person? How's come you talked like that? Yeah, that's true. We can address that if you have some skin in the game, if you're invested in their life. That's for you to do, of course, and try to help encourage them to do the right things and to teach and train them and point out scriptures that might help guide them and direct them of the way God would have them go. But hold on, that's being a baby in Christ. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to do those things. We do, and we've been around a while. I mean, think about it. Not only do we see the development of the Christian life here in verse 18, but also in verse 18, we see the design of the Christian life. Look at verse 18 again in the second part of it. He goes on to say, but when thou shalt be old. And again, he's talking to Peter. When thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. Again, think about that first portion that we talked about, the whole verse. Verily, verily, I say, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. Now, you were immature, Peter. You were independent, Peter. You were indiscreet, Peter. But hold on. When thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. We see the design of the Christian life. We're to be desperate for God. Desperate for God. We ought to find ourselves empty and in need of the word of God. The Bible says in the book of Psalm, chapter 119, verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But we ought to want God to lighten the pathway. We ought to want God to give us direction and leadership. And that's something that comes with some maturity. That comes as part of the design of the Christian life. We ought to be desperate for God, so we need to be desperate for the light. We need to be desperate for the word of God. In Psalm chapter 143, verse 6, the psalmist says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Oh, wow, he's thirsty. Man, we're thirsty for a cold Coca-Cola. We're thirsty for a nice cold glass of water. We're thirsty for uh, 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 a milkshake. And you know what? Those things are good sometimes. But boy, we ought to be thirsty for the Word of God. We ought to be. And that's exactly what the psalmist is trying to imply and, 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 and point out. But the design of the Christian life, we're to be desperate for God, and we, 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 we ought to be desperate for him. And also, we need to find ourselves longing to be in the house of God. Yeah. Again, I mean, it's desperate for God. I mean, the word of God and the house of God are both important. They're both important. In Psalm chapter 122, verse 1, the Bible says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It, it, it wasn't even after. It was before. You know how it is. You know, you're, you're sitting in your easy chair, and it's before church, and you're thinking, man, I don't feel like getting up. Church is going to be in another half hour, and I'm supposed to get up and go, and I don't feel like it. David said, no, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Hey, David, you ready? You want to go to the house of the Lord? Yeah, man, are you kidding? Let's go. It wasn't after the fact that he went, you know, I'm so glad I went. That's how most of us are, right? Man, we go finally, okay, let's go. Now, we don't tell our kids that. Come on, this is what we do, let's go. And we head on out to church and we're thinking, man, I'm tired, I'm wore out. I'd like to just kick back tonight and relax. And then we come back home, we go, you know, I'm, kinda, I'm glad I went. That was good, I enjoyed that. You know, you got the, you got the, uh, the, 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 you know, uh, the soul winning on Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday. You don't feel like going to that. But then when you're done, you go, you know, I'm glad I went. You, you, you got the, the revival service taking place throughout the week, and you're thinking, man, I just need a night off. Man, I've been working all those hours, and man, I just need some relaxation. And you go and you go, man, I'm so glad I went. Amen, that's it. Mm, 
but as we mature in Christ, that should not be quite the end of it. It should be at the beginning we say, it was good when they said unto me, man, the preacher said we're going to have extra services next week. Praise God, we're going to have revival. We're going to get to go soul winning Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Praise God, bless God. Right? Maybe it's a reflection of our immaturity sometimes. All of us included, no changes, right? We're to be desperate for God. That's the design. One of the designs is to be desperate for God. And we should find ourselves feeling empty and in need of the word of God. And we should find ourselves longing to be in the house of God. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Not only are we to be desperate for God, but we're to be dependent upon God. We already touched on this a little bit. But turn, if you would, to James chapter 4, verse 2. Being dependent upon God often reflects itself or shows itself in our prayer lives. Prayer is an indicator of our dependence upon God or lack thereof. He tells us in James chapter 4, verse 2, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Boy, we have a need for prayer in our lives. There's so many needs in our life. Boy, prayer's the way to get them. And um, as, as, you know, his design for us is to see that need, to recognize that need in our life. We're being dependent upon God. When we're dependent on the Lord, we see a need for prayer in our life. We see a need for, of counsel in our life. The Israelites had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And now, under the leadership of Joshua, they've entered into the promised land. Of course, they obey God, and they march around the city once a day for six days. And finally, we know that on the seventh day, they march seven times around that city, Jericho. And we are reminded through the scriptures that those walls fell outward just as God had said and he did a miracle that day. And then they turned their attention to a small little group of people in Ai. Should have been an easy target. Soldiers should have easily marched over top of the city, killed all the men and taken the ground. But that didn't happen that way. As a matter of fact, they lost men themselves They themselves hurt and sent home body bags. Wives had no husbands and children lost their daddies and they couldn't understand it. What in the world had gone wrong? We just took Jericho and there's nothing in Scripture that would imply that anyone lost their lives. And now we go to this small group of men or this small place, Ai, and we are defeated? What a mess. I couldn't figure it out. What had transpired? What had taken place? They found out later that it was really a result of one man's sin, a man by the name of Achan. Achan had taken of the spoils of Jericho, the spoils of which God had forbidden them. And in doing so, he had brought a curse upon the nation. Although God had intended that they would experience victory over their enemies, Because of this curse, their enemies defeated them. Achan and his household ultimately are stoned and burned with fire, and then victory accompanies obedience and purity. Word of Israel's conquest now begin to travel fast, and it reaches the ears of the Gibeonites. And understanding that they were no match for Israel, they set out on a very deceitful mission. They concocted this diabolical plan to preserve their nation and their people. They took moldy bread and old 
bottles of wine and wore tattered garments and worn out clothes to meet the Israelites. They told the leaders of the Israelites, uh, Joshua and those men, they said, listen, we have been on a long journey and we have come to meet you. Man, I'll tell you what, we have looked forward to meeting this great people and these you great leaders and those that God has given such great conquests to, and they lied through their teeth, of course. Israel was deceived, and they entered into a league with them in direct opposition to God's command, by the way. God had told them not to make a league with the nations in their area, and instead they did, nonetheless. The Gibeonites became a very formidable thorn in the flesh of the Israelites. How could that happen? These were God's people. They had just seen Jericho fall. They just watched as God had given them great conquests. How is it possible that this happened? Well, the answer is found in Joshua chapter 9. Look in Joshua chapter 9, verse 14. There's a saying that I have heard and I've adopted it kind of on my own and kind of applied to my life. It goes like this. Don't let anyone be your friend. Don't let just anyone be your friend. Choose your friends. You can be a friend to others, but do not let all people be your friend. You say, that's not right. Yes, it is. It's very right. When someone becomes your friend and you allow them to be your friend, you give them influence in your life. Otherwise, they're not really a friend. Now, I can be a friend to others, but when I allow someone to come into my life and be my friend, then I am allowing myself or opening myself up to their influence. I'll tell you what, this is a a perfect example of that. Notice what happens here in Joshua 9, 14. The Bible says, And the men took of their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. We're going to take what you've brought and receive that gift, and we're going to go ahead and enter into a league with you. They didn't pray about it. They didn't seek the Lord's face. They didn't follow through with God in that situation. See, the Gibeonites lied, but that wasn't the real problem. The real problem wasn't the liars, but the laziness. They had gotten lazy. They didn't think they needed counsel. They thought that they could do it on their own. They were fine. I'm telling you something, they made a big mistake and ultimately was a thorn in their flesh for the rest of their days. They needed only consult the Lord and none of this would have ever happened. And so we see in the Christian life as we look at these different stages, this design of the Christian life is to be desperate for God. And in being desperate for God, we're going to, excuse me, the design of the Christian life, we're to be desperate for God. We're to be dependent upon God. We're to be directed by God. Again, he says to Peter, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. The design of the Christian life. What's God want for us? Man, he wants us to be desperate for him. He wants us to be dependent upon him. He wants us to be directed by him. I love this poem, and it goes like this. One night, I dreamed a dream as I was walking along the beach with my Lord. Across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that At many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me. So I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. When I needed you the most... You'd leave me. He whispered, my precious child. 
I love you and will never leave you. Never, ever during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Boy, relying on God has to begin over. Excuse me, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if yet, uh, as yet, as if nothing yet had been done. Excuse me, I'm trying to read a quote by Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis. He said, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing yet had been done. I, I think that's so, so important. I have a little quote I come up with the other day. It says, God does the impossible with the impossible. You know the impossible are? Us. He does the impossible with the impossible. Many of you have seen God work in your lives. You've seen him do things that are, I mean, if not miraculous, just short of, so to speak. You never even imagined yourself doing them. I have people come up to me all the time and they'll say things like, you know, if you'd have known me or if you'd have told me just a year ago or two years ago that I'd be doing this or doing that, I wouldn't have believed it. You wouldn't have believed it. But that's how God works, right? Isn't that wonderful? It works that way when we allow God to direct our footsteps, when we truly yield ourselves to the Lord and give ourselves to him. And again, that's one of the aspects of the Christian life. The design of the Christian life is that we're to be desperate for God. We're to be dependent upon God. We're to be directed by God. And finally, the destination. We've already noted, as we said already once, the development of the Christian life, the design of the Christian life. But here's the destination of the Christian life in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, this spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. In Romans eight twenty nine, we read, for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You say, well, what's the destination of the Christian life? Well, I think we could say, first of all, to mortify the flesh. It's to mortify the flesh. Turn, if you would, to Romans 12, 1 and 2. You may already have it memorized, but if you'd like to, you may turn there. And we're to mortify the flesh. That means to kill the flesh, to die to the flesh. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, a very familiar passage, I'm sure, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I personally believe that those all three describe the will of God. I don't believe there's three wills. I I just don't. Now, somebody may, that's their business, but I believe that it's good, acceptable, and perfect. I believe it is just like describing a big, blue, round ball. It's one ball. And I believe the will of God is either you're in it or you're out. I believe we all make mistakes, we all mess up, we all make bad decisions. But I believe we can be right back, smack dab in the center of God's will. I believe that. I'm not saying there won't be consequences for our decisions and our bad choices even. I'm just saying I don't believe we have to live forever with this weight of guilt on our shoulders, feeling like, well, I missed God's best. I guess I'll just have to settle for seconds. I don't believe that for a moment. Not for a moment. I believe right where we're at, we can be in the center of God's will. After the most heinous mess-up possible, God can put us back on track if we'll allow him to do so. I just, I'm just convinced of that. 1 Corinthians 15, 31 says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily, the Apostle Paul said. But I'll tell you what, when we start to arrive at the place where God really wants us in the end, it's a place where we've mortified the flesh, where we've died to self, we've crucified the flesh. It doesn't matter what we want anymore. All that matters is what's best for God and others around us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that really what it's all about? Mortifying the flesh. Not only that, 
but we're going to see the destination of the Christian life is also to magnify the Father. It's to magnify the Father. Man, that's really where God wants us. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. We're to magnify him with our life and our lips. Every aspect of our life. Matthew 5, 16. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, as you're making your way there, again, you'll probably go, wow, I've heard that a million times. Yeah, you have. You probably have, and I hope you have. If not, you need to hear it a lot more because we all need to be living according to it. But Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Notice the outcome of our good works. They ought to be to glorify our Father which is in heaven. Obviously, that means that they're really not designed so that you and I can look good before the world. That's not the issue, is it? The issue is that he looks good. And again, he says simply, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Well, let me tell you what, the world is looking. The world, by the way, doesn't see you on the inside. It sees you on the outside. I was telling somebody this morning, I was reading about Madagascar the other day, and I can't remember who it was that went to Madagascar originally, but at the time, there was, there was only heathen there. There weren't saved people at all, and they went there as missionaries, and they began to do the work of the ministry, fearful for their very lives at that point, because some missionaries had lost their lives over there in Madagascar to that point. Nonetheless, they worked there, they strived there, they ministered there, and before they left, they weren't heathen. There were no heathen left. They had converted them. The, the, the Lord had converted them all. At least that was the impression that the majority now, if not all, had come to Christ. Wait a second. They started asking some of the uh, people who had come to the Lord early on, why did you come to Christ? What motivated you? What moved you to receive and accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your life? And they would say things like, well, I knew this man, and he was a thief, and he stopped stealing. And I ended up getting saved too. All it was was it was the life of these believers. Now listen, we understand that all along there was a voice, not just a life, but a voice being proclaimed. They were hearing the gospel and they were seeing the evidence of it. They were seeing the light that came from those believers that glorified the Father, that, that gave credence to and, and credentials to the message that was being preached. Listen, uh, you know, years ago they had this big thing called lifestyle evangelism, and they tried to, here's the problem. It, it's not that we don't need a lifestyle to evangelize. The problem is lifestyle cannot take the place of verbalizing the gospel. You still got to give the gospel. You still got to share it with your mouth, your lips, because people don't get saved by just looking at a life. It's like saying that you're going to get saved if you just look at the rock, because it represents Jesus. If you look at the rock long enough, you'll love Jesus and you'll trust him. No, someone has to tell you that Jesus is the rock and you better depend on him. Somebody's got to tell them. And somebody was preaching the gospel, and probably a number of people, but the lives of those believers spoke volumes. Our lives ought to make a difference too. We need to mortify the flesh and then we need to magnify the Father because that's ultimately the destination of the believer. God doesn't want us wallowing about over here in, in, in immaturity or independence or indiscretion. He wants us to begin to grow as we're more desperate for Him than ever. He wants us to keep growing as we're more dependent upon Him than ever. I mean, he wants us to be directed by him. And as we'll do that long enough, we'll find ourselves ending up in the right destination in the Christian life, a mortified Christian life, a life that magnifies the master, the father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. So, the destination of the Christian life, to mortify the flesh, to magnify the Father, and finally, to maximize the future. 
to maximize the future, to reach our full potential for Christ. We talk about reaching our full potential. Obviously, we think about things like being yielded to the Spirit of God, crucified to the flesh, submitted to God, surrendered for service, experiencing victory, exercising moderation, exhibiting love, all of those things, yes. But when we start talking about reaching our full potential, too many times we think about what we're doing and we say, well, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm reaching my potential. Look at all the things I'm doing. And especially as I compare myself maybe to others, man, I'm busy up to here and I'm really exercising. I, I read through my Bible once this year. I'm really doing well and, and I've reached my full potential. But see, when God starts talking about reaching our full potential, he's not talking about what we've done. He's talking about, is there anything that's been left on the table? I mean, when we get to heaven one day, God may say, yes, this is what you did, but I want to show you what you could have done. I want to show you what you left on the table, what you did not take advantage of. And I think about prayer, and I think about the Holy Spirit of God in our life. I think about the opportunity to impact heaven and eternity by reaching out with the gospel of Jesus Christ and fulfilling our sole purpose. And I think, how much will I leave on the table when I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day, how much will I look back on and say, man, I regret not doing that for Jesus. And someone says, it's all about more, isn't it? It's always about more. Well, that's what you say when you go to work every day. Give me more money. I want more money. I need more of my paycheck. I need more, I need more time off. I need more this. I need more that. But in the Christian life, heaven forbid God asks more of us. We have our own lives to live, don't we? We guard our time and we guard our lives. And sadly enough, God's left to pick up the pieces. It's kind of like we're going through our own lives sometimes if we're not careful and we're gleaning in our little vineyards and we're gleaning in our, our fields and we're leaving the gleanings for him. Just a little leftover. We're gathering it all in and leaving the little scraps for Jesus to pick up after us when it should be the other way around. You say, that's easy for you. You're a preacher. That's what you get paid to do, buddy. Yeah, sad that you think that way. You really think that that's why most preachers do what they do? To get a paycheck and be able to take it easy on the job while he watches you do all the work? I don't think that's what most preachers are about. I, I mean, there may be a few like that. But I think most preachers really sincerely want to obey the Lord and serve the Lord Jesus. And I think they're giving their lives. Listen, if you're a good preacher, you don't leave the job inside the church building. You walk out with it every day. You carry it on your shoulders all the time. You say, well, I don't have time for that. Yes, you do. We all have time for the Lord. Man, he gives you a wonderful wife, enjoy her. He gives you a wonderful husband, enjoy him. He gives you wonderful children, enjoy them. He gives you a great job and you're financially, enjoy it. Use it for God's glory and use it for your, and enjoy it. But let's not neglect God in the process of trying to acquire things that he hasn't given us. Let's let God have his way in our life. Man, the outcome is a destination. We're looking to reach a destination of a crucified, mortified Christian life um, to magnify the Father at all costs, to maximize the future. When you stand before Jesus Christ, will you hear well done? Will he say well done to you? And listen, I, you could ask the same question of me. Man, I want him to, though. I want him to. I, I honestly, I don't, I don't know that I'll ever hear those words. I really don't. I'd like to believe I will, but honestly, I'm going to be frank with you. I think I leave a lot on the table. I do. I, I just, man, I, I, want, I, want to, I want to hear those words. I say, Lord, I want my life, my relationship with you to be such that, and, and honestly, it, it's not about knocking on more doors necessarily. It's not about spending more time in the house of God for me. It's not always about doing more of this and that, things that you personally see. 
It's about the times you don't see. It's about that time I spend in my prayer closet. It's about the time I spend on my knees praying, not just for you, but others in this world that are in need of Christ. It's about my relationship with the Lord and being able to enter into that holy place and spend time with him and experience him firsthand to experience the power of answered prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. How much of that am I leaving on the table? Because I possibly don't prioritize my relationship because maybe sometimes I act I guess like a babe in Christ and I get a little selfish I act immature I don't use discretion and I get a little independent have you ever been there I know I have and I still war with that all the time But where are you at in your Christian life stage as a whole, though? In general, would you say, well, I'm still in that developmental stage. I'm early on in my Christian life. Now, think about that for a minute. How long have you been a Christian? How long should you be a Christian before you grow enough that you can move out of the developmental stage? And walk into the design stage where you're starting to do the things that please the Lord. You're desperate for him now like never before. You're directed by him and and you are just excited about the Lord Jesus Christ in so many different ways. Dependent on him even. Stage one, stage two. What about this stage over here? What about the destination stage? Have you mortified the flesh consistently? Do you find yourself in a place where you're magnifying the Father, you're maximizing the future, you're putting yourself in a place where when I see him as best I can, I want to hear him say, well done, and I'm doing all I can to arrive at that goal. Well, I see some life stages in the life of Peter, and I just wonder, what stage are you in? Developmental? Design, or are you in that final destination? Have you already gotten there? Isn't it pitiful to think that we can be saved for 20 years and we're still drinking the sincere milk of the word? I'm going to end with this. I didn't plan on it, but look at Hebrews chapter 5. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> he says, of whom, when, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers. Remember our series in this. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Wow. You know, it's possible that we can be in a position where we ought to be much further ahead than we are. A group of tourists visiting a very beautiful little village walked by an old man sitting beside a fence one day. In a rather patronizing way, one of the tourists said, were any great men born in this village? The old man replied, nope, only babies. Every person who's born again starts life as a baby in Christ. Every one of us. Whether the new convert is 6 or 60, that person is still a new Christian and needs to grow in the Lord. A baby Christian who's been saved for 40 years is a tragedy, by the way. God intends for us to grow and mature so that 
we can be a positive influence in the lives of others. Boy, that journey must be planned out. We need a process. Some of you men remember that, don't you, in one of the sessions. Growth doesn't happen by chance. Great men and women of God are not born. They're grown. They're developed. Boy, I just want to encourage you to just work hard to develop in the Christian faith. Be honest with yourself in your evaluation of your progress to this point and ask yourself, when I stand before Jesus Christ, will I have been to a place where I can hear him say, well done? Let's think about that a little bit. Let's give some thought to it. The developmental stage, the design stage, the destination stage. Where are you at today? May God help us to take steps to strive to be mature in the Lord Jesus Christ as he would have us be. Father, we come to you. We're grateful, Father, for just a few moments that we had around your word today. We ask, Lord, that you would just bless it now. May you be glorified in the midst of it all. We thank you, we love you, and we just ask, dear God, that you would just work in our lives. Lord, there's no doubt that as believers, Lord, there's all, I'm sure all of us could admit there's room for growth and need for growth in our lives. Lord, help us, Father, not to just assume we're where we need to be, but Lord, to truly evaluate ourselves. Even as the children of Israel failed to go to you and seek your counsel, Lord, may we not fail to go to you and seek counsel in this area. May we ask you, Father, to be honest with us and to reveal to us where we're at And then, Father, help us to begin to put forth a strategy, a plan to go to the next level. Lord, we ask that, Father, we would not gauge ourselves or measure ourselves between ourselves and among ourselves, but that we would measure ourselves based on your word, your son Jesus, and the word of God. Now, Lord, we need you today, and we'll thank you for what you'll do. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand.